Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, you are a great God, and we thank you so much. Father, we can just see it this morning as you bring the rain many of us have prayed for. And Father, may we see your good works this morning as you just work within the hearts of your people. And we just pray that you would join with us as we invite you, as we express our love to you and celebrate your presence. We pray that you would join in a mighty way this morning. We praise the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. We join with the Revelation saints in singing blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor, power and might be to our God forever and ever. For you are worthy of all praise and adoration. And you have created all things that we might enjoy your great gifts. In our selfish, rebellious states, we have not done so yet. You have patiently called us back to worship. As believers, we stand before you righteous through the blood of your son Jesus, who has earned our salvation with his obedience. Join together as a body of believers this morning, a community united in one Lord, one faith, and in one baptism, declaring that there is only one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We come together due to the grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We pray this morning that you would increase our measure of faith in order that as a body we may follow the instructions of the Apostle Paul when he exhorted us to let our love be genuine, to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good, to love one another brotherly affection, to outdo one another in showing honor, to not to be slothful in zeal but fervent in spirit and serve the Lord, that we may rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in in prayer, that we may be able to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality to each other. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for the message, strike our hearts, cause us to respond, that God may get the glory and we receive the blessings of delighting in God's word. Be active this morning and let none of us escape your powerful work. Together we confess that Jesus is Lord and that salvation comes under no other name than Jesus. We pray this in the name of your Son, your precious Son. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and join with me in the Gospel of Mark. As we look at Jesus, the Son of Man. Mark chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a wild man making waves in the wilderness. Mark begins his letter by identifying in verse 1 his purpose in writing. You'll see that as we go to verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is not writing a biography here. We must understand that this morning. But he's recording the ministry and message of good news of Jesus. Most likely he is taken as his theme, the preaching of the apostle Peter. Originally writing to a Roman audience, he informs them of who Jesus is. 
We see that he's Jesus, which is the Hebrew word for Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation or salvation is of Yahweh. Christ is the Greek word for anointed one, translating the Hebrew word for Messiah. And he also states that Jesus is the Son of God. And so he's proclaiming something special. And that's really the title of the Gospel of Mark, is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is no ordinary letter or just a recollection of past events, but a bold proclamation, a preaching of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished, hence why it moves quickly and it's action-filled. He is mainly writing to a Gentile readership that we saw last week, most likely the Church of Rome, during a time of persecution. He's following people who have been persecuted and through different times been cast out of Rome, been able to be brought back, and now are facing the persecution under Nero. And interestingly, he begins not with Jesus' birth and early life like the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, but he starts with the Old Testament. So let's read there in verse 2. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way. And verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Father, as we come before you this morning, open our hearts to this word, to this gospel. Help us to understand through the Holy Spirit what the gospel is here. And may we rejoice with it, may we take delight in it. And Lord, may we be willing to yield ourselves as instruments of righteousness as we reconsider our lives, and Lord, imply these truths to ourselves. And I pray that you just be with me as we speak. Let us speak words that are edifying, that are building up, and let us point to the gospel of who Jesus is. We thank you for this. In your name, amen. What Mark has done here is he's combined three verses here. He's combined first Exodus chapter 23 and verse 20, a promise that God made to Moses with Malachi chapter 3 in verse 1. In, in verse 2 there, and then he adds in verse 3, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. But what we see, he's combining three verses, two of them in verse 2, and another one in verse 3. And I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 2 to understand what he's saying here in the first part of that. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right before you get to Matthew, so uh, several pages over back from where you are. And in Malachi chapter 2, I want to start in verse 17. And what we see, this is the last Old Testament prophet. He's ready here, he's speaking. And here we see from the Lord, it says in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? He answers by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where? is the God of justice. You can hear these people, their lives are filled with just the Greeks coming and taking them and others that are just making their lives miserable. And they're asking, where is the God, the God of justice? And this is where we find what Mark is writing, but we find it in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. For those who are looking forward, he says he will come. 
And they will send a messenger to prepare the way. The people have wearied the Lord with their generations of unfaithfulness and questions. God promises that He will send a righteous judge. While in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, the prophet gives them words of encouragement in the face of defeat and banishment and exile from the land. That God will one day restore Israel through a righteous king. As we see in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 10, where God promises, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arms rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd, and He will gather the lambs in His arms, and He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. God has given His people promises. I will not forsake you. I will not forget you. However, Israel has continued to forsake the Lord and God has been silent for 400 years since those prophetic words were spoken. There have been some victories like the Maccabean uprising that drove out the Greeks, but eventually they were once again subdued by the Roman Empire with no relief and restoration in sight. And Mark starts his gospel by identifying that John the Baptist is the one prophesied in Malachi and in Isaiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not the righteous judge and king, but the one commissioned to prepare the way, similar to the way the kings of old were announced beforehand. We're going to see that John accomplished this preparation of preparing the way by calling people back to repentance and worship and expectation for the coming Messiah. They had forgotten. They were no longer looking. And Mark informs his listeners and readers that the ministry of Jesus, and this is important, the ministry of Jesus is rooted in the Old Testament. Some will ask, well, is it important for you and I to read the Old Testament? And I would say, yes. For you truly cannot understand the new without the old. It's rooted. Jesus is the theme even in the Old Testament. So he's rooted in the promises of the Old Testament. Hence why Mark starts here. You see, Jesus is that righteous judge and king promised in Exodus and Isaiah and Malachi. I want to start by giving you just a short bio and introduction of John. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke, if you would. Luke chapter 1. The story of John and his miraculous birth is well known and recorded in Luke chapter 1, where his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, were past childbearing years. They were older in age, and it didn't look like they were going to have any children. But look at verse 13 of Luke chapter 1 where God, an angel, appears before Zechariah and says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Look at verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's important. We'll see that his purpose and his ministry is already 
planned out for him before he's born. And he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And as you and I know from the Christmas story, Zechariah doubted the angel, did he not? And he was made mute. He could not speak until the birth of his son. And we know that Elizabeth and Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, were cousins. So John and Jesus were cousins. And after the birth of John, Zechariah was able to speak. And he gave this word of blessing. So you're there in Luke 1. Now go down to verse 68. For once again, we see John is rooted in some Old Testament promises pointing to Jesus, who is also rooted there. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, says Zechariah, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant to us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before all days. Verse 76, this is where we're getting. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go prepare the Lord, or before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John was no ordinary man seeking what he should do, but he was divinely ordained to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. So John is a special man, and I want to give you some observations, if I could. Here's some observation about John. We see the first one in verse 4. We understand that John's ministry was very, very simple. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The baptism here expressed repentance. It is not a saving baptism, but it expressed a repentance which is a change of mind or a deliberate turning from sin. We find that only true repentance leads to God's forgiveness, and that itself is a gift from God. It was important that the people of Israel recognize their sin against God and repent. They had fallen far from Him from the promises of the Old Testament. They were not seeking Him with their whole heart. Their hearts had strayed from God and the covenant that He had made with them. The Jews had a very strong tradition of washing and cleansing rituals found in the law. So it was very fitting that John would introduce baptism as a way to express their repentance. He was drawing them back in and say, listen, the Savior, the Messiah will be coming. You must prepare yourself. And that comes with repentance and followed by forgiveness. His ministry was simple. He didn't sway him with a lot of suave words and, and all sorts of logic and rhetoric. He was just a man with a simple message, continue on from time to time. And then, by the way, that's the same message that you and I have. It's the same message that Jesus preached. It's the same message that Peter preached, repent and be baptized. The second thing we see in verse 5 is 
that John's impact was powerful. Look at verse 5. It says, All the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem was going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. People were responding. Now you need to understand that John was located in the wilderness near the Jordan River. It was approximately 20 miles from Jerusalem at about 4,000 feet. It's not an easy place to get to. You and I may drive to that type of place, but here they would have to walk. It would have taken them quite a long time to get there and to listen. But his message was so powerful that it caused great excitement as people went out in droves to see him. And not only to see him, but they were convinced by his message. They were touched by his call and realized their sin. His impact was powerful. What was interesting in Acts chapter 19, we see that it was also far-flunged. For his ministry reached as far as Ephesus in Asia Minor, what you and I all know as Turkey. When Paul was passing through the inland country, he came to Ephesus and he met some men. And he goes, have you been baptized? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed in the Messiah? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And they said, well, into what were you baptized? And they said, into the baptism of John. People from all over heard him and spread throughout the earth. His impact was powerful. In verse 6, we see that John's focus was countercultural. John was clothed with camel's hair is the description. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Hence why I could see that I was not the preparer of the way, because I don't think I could eat locusts and, and wild honey. But like holy men of old, like Elijah, who wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist, John was not concerned about his personal appearance or in getting the finer things of life or enriching himself through ministry. He was a simple man who was dedicated to his mission. There's not something about him that you would say, oh, I, I want to be like him. Now, it might be a spectacle to go and watch, but it's not someone that would say, wow, look at that. I want to be like him. But most importantly, and I love this one in verse 7, is that we see his personality. And his personality is layered with humility. I imagine that he was a man of fire and brimstone and telling people to repent, but yet he had a humility about him that is missing for many today. But verse 7 says, He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and even untie. See, John, he pointed to someone greater. He realized that he was not the message. He was not the ministry. And I have to tell you, sometimes it's very difficult... Many times our default setting is to preach ourselves and to teach about ourselves or to make ourselves the main thing. John was humble. I believe his parents probably instilled to him at his young age what his purpose was and that you were a gift from the angels. Now you can imagine how that might build someone up. That's what we do today in, in life now. Or, or you're a special child. Everything about you is good and you're a wonderful gift and we shower these children and we wonder why we come up with spoiled brats sometimes. He was a humble. His background and his, his origins did not create some type of egomaniac. He was not interested in taking center stage or building his own brand and agenda. 
He recognized his calling of pointing to someone greater and he stayed with it. In verse 8, the fifth thing we see is John's message pointed to the one who is greater. It was not enough to be humbled. It says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with a greater spirit. John realized that his ministry was only temporary, that it was a stopgap, that it was a shadow of something greater to come. John is a man who's very unique. It's one of those ones that you wish there was more about him, but what we see is just really it's a short bio, but just in this case, where we see more about John other than in the Gospel of John, not written by him, that we see a great picture of his ministry. He was a humble man who recognized what his job was, and he did it efficiently. There's three things that I think that we can learn just from this passage about John and who he was and how he went about his ministry. The first thing that you're going to see is that God is faithful in his promises. See, John was fulfillment of the promised spirit of Elijah to come. Again, place yourself into the people of Israel. They have strayed from God. They're asking God, where is justice? When are you coming? When are you going to restore your people? When are you coming again and give us relief? But John, once again, gives us a picture that God has not forsaken his people, that he has not forgotten him. In Malachi chapter 4, if you want to turn there very quickly, in chapter 4, verse 5, we see that after they're complaining, God says, Behold, I'll send my messenger to you. In chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Again, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, one who they would consider their greatest prophet, one who is very, very powerful before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He says, you'll know it because I'm going to send you one who will be Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. That's the promise of God 400 years before Christ appeared. And then if you were to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9, this is important. In Mark chapter 9, we see that how God is faithful in this promise. Look at verse 11. It says, And they asked him, speaking of the disciples, who said, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, why were the scribes saying that Elijah must come? What were they looking to? Malachi chapter 4. So they say, Why is Elijah must come? And Jesus said to him, Elijah does come first to restore all things and how is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as is written of him. Matthew tells us this, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So God is faithful in His promises. He does not forget them. Now, they may not see that His promise is coming true. Zechariah showed that John was that promised one. Mark is, again, sharing it, that Christ is rooted in the Old Testament. The promises, John is the divinely promised messenger from God who's sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. God has not forgotten His promises. And you and I are here today. And we're 2,000 years after Christ has left the earth and said, I will return in the same manner. 
And we too may be like Israel saying, when are you coming? And even in Peter, there are some that were saying, oh, the Lord is not coming. In Thessalonians, we see that many were thinking, wait a second, people are dying. What will happen to them? But we're not to despair. For as Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will return and bring you back. You and I must be like John and accept that his promises are true. For John is a fulfillment of that promise. God is faithful in all his promises. I ask you, in what way today are you not trusting in the promise of God? You may not be trusting him in the promise of your wife or your husband being that gift from God. You may be not trusting the promises that God will fulfill and keep you safe and that he'll provide your needs or that your salvation is found in the works of Christ and not in your own works. Let me tell you, don't doubt. Don't doubt the good promises of God. And number two, not only is God as faithful in his promises, but we see that actions must follow genuine repentance. Actions must follow genuine repentance. You can almost imagine here's Elijah, all in his wild fury, preaching to repent, prepare the way of the Lord, get baptized. And you can see many people as we see are doing it. You and I understand that. People who just say yes to anything. Or they get caught up in the emotion or what everyone else is doing. Well, if he's getting baptized, then I'll get baptized also. But in Matthew chapter 3, John said when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism to see what was going on. These were the religious leaders. They have no need to be baptized. They say, no, we're already okay. John said to him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John recognized that actions must follow genuine repentance. Baptism, confession of faith is not enough. We must also express that. And that's what baptism is. That's what being obedient is. It's expressing what we say, our confession. John was not fooled by false conversions and baptism. He recognized that it was true repentance was necessary. First Thessalonians 1, we see Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, speaking of the church of Thessalonica. And he says this of the church of Thessalonica, and this is true repentance. He says, You have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And I'm here to tell you, I believe there are many people today that are confessing Christ, but yet they're still serving idols and other gods. They have not truly turned away from serving themselves, their families, or some other type of thing. The Bible says that there is a true turning. Actions must follow general repentance. You see, without true repentance, John knew that there was no life. In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, we see the disciples' reaction to the news of the spread of the gospel of repentance. When it says, and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And let me share with you this morning, if you have confessed Christ, if you've said, I've repented of dead sins and I've turned to trust God, then that's going to show itself 
in obedience to God's word. It's going to show itself as we struggle and fight with sin. Not that we're perfect, not that we have it all down, but that we're fighting it. So many times I encountered people who accepted Jesus in a vacation Bible school or as a child or in junior church. And then they go and they graduate from high school and the story is simple. After high school, I kind of went my own way. Then after 10, 15, 20 years, they say, well, I'm still saved. I said a prayer. I was baptized. But their life shows no mark of change. That is not true repentance. That's not the mark of a genuine believer. So John was not just looking to gear up a bunch of baptism numbers, but he's looking at the transformation of life, and so shall we. And so is your life marked by genuine repentance, in which you're fighting sin, you're turning and trusting in Christ? For without repentance, there is no life. And number three, the third thing that I see from this passage is that we need to keep our eyes clearly on Christ. John never allowed his ego to get in his way. He never allowed the many crowds to keep him from seeing what his true job was. In the midst of those waters, as many people were coming, names and big names and all these people, he never once said, oh, look at how good I'm doing. He realized that he was the one to prepare the way. As we read earlier, John knew that someone and something greater was coming. He was that shadow. He realized that his ministry was a shadow of things to come. And too many times, you and I, we think we're something and really we're just shadows. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, we see the promises of God followed with true repentance, is keeping their eyes. For he recognized that there was a greater baptism to come. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 1, in verse 4, while staying with them, Jesus ordered his disciples after his resurrection not to depart from Jerusalem. But he says, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. It was given back in Joel. We read it earlier in our scripture reading. He says, The promise of the Father which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In Acts chapter 2, they kept their eyes on Christ. For when the day of Pentecost arrived in chapter 2, verse 1 of Acts, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. and began to speak in other tongues as the Lord gave them utterance. This outpouring of the Spirit led the disciples out of their hiding and gave them boldness to preach and teach Jesus. It gave them the power to heal and to cast out demons. Through the work of the Spirit, the believers brought thousands to salvation. It was said that these were the men who turned the world 
upside down. It was through the works of Jesus that the Father has given us the gift of the Spirit that we might keep our eyes on the one who brings salvation. Like John, we must keep our eyes focused on the one rather than all other things. And let me tell you, Satan is trying to draw us away from God. He wants to keep our eyes unfocused and focused on things that are anything besides Christ. But as Paul said, I preach nothing but Christ crucified. John was a wonderful, remarkable man. But John is not the focus here. The focus is on Jesus Christ. For John shows us once again that God is faithful and that true repentance is followed by action and that we're to keep our eyes on Christ. If we were to see the end of John's life, we would see where it ends. And so with that, turn to Mark chapter 6. It's famous, but as we're going through Mark, as I shared before, we'll be looking at it quite differently than we normally would. In Mark chapter 6, we see the end of John. Mark chapter 6, starting with verse 14, where it says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. And some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. This is why the miraculous power is at work. But others said he's Elijah, and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but he could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, but yet he heard him gladly. But in verse 21, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give it up to half my kingdom. Verse 24. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. From great beginnings to an ignoble end. Like King David, he served God in his generation and died. Even Herod said that John was a righteous and a holy man. He hated him and loved him at the same time. To some, John's life and ministry might have seemed like a failure. Though he preached to many and he had many disciples, John continually pointed to Jesus. We see one example when John was standing with two of his disciples, Scripture says, and as he looked at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold, there's the Lamb of God. And two of his disciples 
heard him, and followed Jesus. One of those men was Andrew, the brother of Peter. So he lost all of his disciples to someone greater. He was put in prison for not preaching a lie, but for preaching the truth. He suffered from doubt while he was in prison, asking Jesus, Are you the one? Have I wasted my life preaching and pointing others to you? Are you the one that we're to be waiting for? Eventually losing his head, his life to a hard-headed woman seeking revenge for her own sin. To the world, he would look like a failure. Yet Jesus tells his disciples that among those born of women, none is greater than John. For us today, as we look at Mark's gospel, you and I need to be John's. We need to be the men who prepare the way to be expectant. See, John pointed to the first advent, while you and I need to be pointing to and expecting the second advent when Christ comes to judge and reward. For like Israel of old, we too have fallen asleep. And many have despaired of His coming. To some, they don't know that Christ is coming to judge and to reward. And so we need to begin preaching and preaching the gospel of repentance. For when he comes, there will be no second chance. This delay is important for you and I to bring our families, our house, our neighbors to the one who can save. You and I also must adopt John's philosophy that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So let me ask you this morning, Christian, are you humbly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? Is your heart prepared and are you expecting the return of the Savior? Have you fallen asleep? To those of you who have not accepted Christ this morning, I pray that you may see that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior, the divine Son of God, sent to fulfill the promises of God to reconcile man back to himself. I'd ask with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like for you to take a moment to pause, to pray, to consider the words of Mark and to respond to what the Holy Spirit may be calling you to this morning. Father, your word is true. Let us remember, Lord, that you're faithful in all of your promises. Let us recognize that, Father, we must follow our repentance with action. We must follow through in obedience. And Father, may you just impress upon our hearts to keep our eyes on Christ. Let us have that humility of John. Lord, may we be in the business of preparing the hearts of many to receive you with gladness and with joy, expecting your turn to come. May we look forward to it as Paul tells Titus that we're to look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing. Lord, whatever you may be calling each and every one of us to do, give us the strength to respond, the courage to respond, the boldness. May your spirit fall on us with all the power to follow through in your word. We pray this in the name of your son. And God's people said, Amen. 
We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.